0: In 50 years, we have taken so much out of the ocean, and we put so much into the ocean, changing through what we're putting into the atmosphere as well as into the ocean. The climate, the chemistry of the planet, half the coral reefs are gone or are in a state of decline through actions that we have taken that seem to be, oh, well, you know, we, we can take the grouper we're not going to harm the coral, but we'll take the fish. Huh. Not realizing that the corals need the fish. <laughs> <laughs> they need yeah, the they,
1: they, work, they work together.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a system right. and it's it's a, it's a really tightly knit community. So taking the lobsters out of coral reefs, you, you degrade the system and make them more vulnerable to right. climate change and to the acidification of the ocean. It, it's as if we're doing everything possible to make the planet inhospitable for us. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders, climate champions, and sustainability professionals who are making an impact in their businesses today. Each leader is solving complex challenges and providing solutions within their respective areas of expertise. And here's our host, Sean Grady.
1: Hello, ET Nation. I'm excited to announce that I've updated my website that provides listeners more access to episode content and information about the podcast. Please take a moment and visit the website and sign up for email notifications and blog postings. Also, check out our sponsors page to see who supports the show. We can't thank these industry leaders enough. Finally, I would really appreciate if you would take a moment and post a review and rate the podcast episodes either from my website or from within your podcast app. This helps the podcast get more exposure on Apple Podcasts and other podcast networks. Also, please send me comments and recommendations on topics that you want to hear about. I hope you enjoy the new website, so check it out at com. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Grady. And today's guest is Dr. Sylvia Earle, a world renowned oceanographer and marine biologist. She is the founder of Mission Blue and deep ocean exploration and research uh, marine engineering group. Uh, And she is an explorer in resident at the uh, National Geographic Society and an author of several books. And so today's we're so excited to have her. She's, she's, um, she's also referred to as her deepness and she's got a vast amount of knowledge here. So welcome to the show, Sylvia.
0: I'm so glad to be on board.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. So, you know, I started doing some research on you and there was a lot of content out in the market or in the web for you. Uh, but you know, one of the questions I was curious is like, when did you know you wanted to be a Marine biologist?
0: not long after i started breathing i guess <laughs> that's early <laughs> i mean as a kid my our, my parents went to the new jersey shore when mm-hmm. i first met the ocean actually i think i was about three and of course the ocean inspires that sense of wonder and beauty yeah. and you know, whatever it is but it's life in the ocean it really captured my imagination Mm-hmm. And yeah, those.
1: you know, that's 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 a great uh point. I think whenever you're out in in nature, you have a sense of just awe and just wonder. And and I can I could see that I could, you know, um, that's great. Well, you are recognized as one of the most influential female marine biologists in the world, uh, it and in today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are many others, but, you know, in today's term, you are the original OG here, you know, in female marine biologists and and lovingly, re- re- lovingly referred to as her deepness. And can you describe what it's like, what it was like in the early days uh, of, of your career and being like one of the leading females in this in this field? And you know, what was it? What was it like? Well,
0: actually, there are many more women today than there were when I first first tried scuba back in the nineteen fifties. It was considered unusual for women even to want to scuba dive, let alone to become a scientist. Mm-hmm. And there have been times when I was greatly outnumbered gender-wise mm-hmm. in addition to the Indian Ocean in nineteen sixty-four or I was the only woman in 70 guys oh wow if, a, if it were turned around I ask men sometimes if you were to go on an expedition with 70 women and you're the only guy would that be okay and they usually say Ooh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> It'd <be> all right <laughs> but um, I think now it has really begun to be more of not exactly a level playing field mm-hmm. but back in 1970 when I applied to be a part of a experiment living underwater and there were no one really expected women to apply at all this is before there were astronauts and this was a program for so-called aquanauts living okay. underwater right. for two weeks at a time but some of us did apply and the head of the program James Miller considering what to do about this, was uh, now become kind of a hero of sorts by saying, well, half the fish are female. I guess we could put up with a few women. (laughs) And they they made it possible not to do what I had originally planned to do, working with some of my fellow scientists, all male. Mm -hmm. Um, But we formed at the request of of the organizers, it was NASA and uh, Department of Interior before NOAA existed. Smithsonian Institution, General Electric Company, the Navy. Mm-hmm. Um, they together thought it was okay for women to come, but they didn't like the idea of men and women living together underwater. What a con- I mean, today, no problem. <laughs> but then <laughs> we decided to have a woman's team, and I got to be the leader of that team.
2: So. Oh, wow. They,
0: it's it's so different. Uh, it doesn't might not seem all that different to some <laughs> women who very yeah. quickly reach a you know level and get stopped for one reason or another. But it really has changed enormously.
1: Well, yeah, and I'm sure there's so many women in the in the field now that look up to you and you know just you know so thankful that you were there, kind of blazing a trail. They, What's that?
0: They usually look down.
1: <laughs> well, I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, say so. Um, what is it like being the first female chief scientist of of uh, the National Ocean- Oceanic Atmosphere Administration NOAA? What was that like? Because that that was a big honor, a big uh, you know post for you. I'm sure. What was that well, like?
0: It was a great opportunity, really, to be on the inside of government instead of being just like most of us, most of the time as citizens, without the uh, authority that comes with having a position that making decisions about how taxpayer money gets spent.
1: (laughs) Right, right.
0: And I know it is the organization that embraces the weather service. It is ocean and atmospheric research and The fisheries, all of the nation's fisheries policy, not state policy, but of course, the overarching U.S. policy is within that department. Uh And so uh, satellites, the environmental satellites are under NOAA's jurisdiction. So for me, it was a tremendous opportunity to get a fast education on the nation and, and internationally as well, because... Science is not confined to any one place or any yeah. one country. It was, so it was the international aspect. In fact, as chief scientist in 1990, that was the time when the Persian Gulf exploded, and mm-hmm. up up until that time, it was the biggest oil spill in mm-hmm. history, and it was deliberate. Yeah, accident. It was a deliberate uh, action on the part of um, Iraq to <laughs> really destroy the wells. The, yeah, destroy Kuwait's oil wells. But they also had a huge impact on the on the Gulf as a whole, and that mm-hmm. impact is enduring. Because although superficially it looks as though the oil has gone away, but it seeps down into the into the the sand Sands. and the mud. And more than that, so much killing took place so fast that those systems, everything from the tiny organisms to the equivalent of manatees, their dugongs, and the seagrass meadows, they you know dicks they'll, they'll never go back to what they mm. were. Mm. They can be restored in, to some extent, but
2: mm-hmm. it
0: just was like a shift. Oh. You think about Europe after World War II it you know it has healed oh yeah but it's not the same
1: it's not the same yeah yeah well and so what were some of the challenges maybe you faced besides okay that was a big challenge obviously working in and around that but uh what was it like to be in that chief role
0: i think humbling most most of all because of understanding how much influence how much impact the policies that are made actually have mm-hmm. on 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 the world i mean uh-huh. setting the um, goals and quotas for fishing for example i have a, i felt then and even more strongly as time goes by that we're, we're really extracting far too much out of the ocean at the same uh-huh. time using the ocean as a dump site yeah. and respecting the ocean but to face the challenge of trying to shift policy is really mm-hmm. hard because it's driven by habits, it's driven by expectations, it's largely driven by money.
1: Money, politicians—I mean, there, there's a lot involved in that, I'm sure, right? I, I imagine that was a, a difficult uh, challenge to maneuver those uh, those uh, those yeah. issues, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, and I don't, the, the problems were not so much gender related. It was just the problems that are inherent in undertaking that, that responsibility, that sure. role.
1: Wow. Now you stayed in that role for a couple of years mm-hmm. and then you said, I think I want to go out and do something on my own and, and have a different, a bigger impact and a different voice.
0: Well, it's, it's both. But to, to have a responsible role in the government gives you not just perspective but opportunities to have to make a difference on a large larger scale in some ways than you can as an individual but you're also constrained at least as a as a presidential appointee, I was told I had to be a team player, which meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you You're, you had to watch what you say or do. You couldn't quite step out of line if that you had an opposing really, opinion.
0: Really hard, especially with respect to fisheries issues. I went to a fisheries council meeting where I learned that ninety percent of the bluefin tuna in the North Atlantic were were gone. And this this was nineteen ninety. And that is in twenty years the population. We're so good at killing them, taking them, marketing them, eating them, that 90% were gone. And uh-huh. I said, "Whoa! If we can do that in in 20 years, uh, we're, if, what's our goal? Are we trying to exterminate them? Because if we are, we're doing a great we're job. We're doing. We have yeah. 10% left to go. And wow. that's when they started calling me the Sturgeon General. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did, <laughs> didn't that, I did see that in that.
0: meetings. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. <laughs> They're like, wait a minute. That that's yeah. opposed to our uh, economic uh, fishing, uh, There's economy a here. heavy,
0: heavy, um, impact. Oh it, yeah. It's largely yeah. Money driven by those, the commercial fishing interests Right. say in this nation's policy about the ocean, let us do
1: yeah no I, I and i think that'd be a big challenge and and i mean just it's like it's like turning the titanic in a sense or it's a big ship to turn around to, to get a decision made i mean it's like you know it takes long time to turn the tide
0: but once you nudge it, if you can nudge it even a little it, bit
1: it can get some
2: yeah
0: the impact is is huge and yeah i like to think that i've done some nudging both from the inside and the outside noah and And certainly since then.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about your Mission Blue uh, organization and, uh, you know, share with the listeners what that's all about and and maybe a little bit about uh, what hope spots are. I kind of was interested to learn more about hope spots.
0: In In 2009, I was given the Ted Prize that comes with a wish. You're supposed to make a wish big enough to change the world. And my wish <laughs> was to ignite public support for you know, campaign, new submarines, ocean research, exploration, but the goal to establish a network
2: uh-huh. of
0: areas in the ocean uh-huh. that would be protected, hope spots large enough to save and restore the blue heart of the planet, the ocean.
2: Uh-huh.
0: It is really articulate, A, I articulated something that I've been passionate about, I suppose, starting maybe in the 1970s when it was obvious, even then, that we what we were putting into the ocean, or what we are taking out of the ocean, was not only changing the nature of the ocean, but changing the nature of nature uh-huh. of the whole world, uh-huh. the ocean drives climate and weather. It's home for most of life on Earth. And our ability to change the chemistry of the ocean by what we're putting in and what we're taking out is changing everything. And so. I don't
1: know if people quite understand the relationship of the ocean with our daily existence and and how much, right, how much is, you know, how much that contributes to the air we breathe and uh you know there's so much you know air and car- you know, oxygen being produced for the, through photosynthesis through all of these uh you know undersea uh you know algaes and and, and plant life that it's helping uh you know us and you know the atmosphere and i don't think people understand that relationship
0: but once you know you can't no. Once you see it, it's a part of you. Right. And children learn a lot that was, wasn't available to know when I was a kid. Like, what, what does Earth look like from space? Mm-hmm. The world is blue. Um, they are beginning to understand basic things, such as the fact that the ocean drives climate and weather. Uh-huh. The greatest diversity and abundance of life on Earth is out there in the sea. It's not, not in schools everywhere, and it's not part of the <laughs> basic knowledge that that most people have. But we're getting there. We know more people now are aware than ever before, and and once it becomes truly integrated into our thinking, the way we learn our numbers we learn our alphabet whatever Uh language you speak it starts somewhere you learn a language right but we need to learn the language of nature yeah to realize we're a part of it not apart from it right and that what we do to the natural world especially the ocean really determines our existence and the quality not just the quality of life but the nature of life itself
1: yeah, pretty powerful stuff when you really start to connect the dots. I mean, and I think that's part of the challenge is connecting the dots for people to see. That's right. The the, the you know the symbiotic relationship of all of this together. You know, because if we keep taking things away, you know, it's going to affect us somewhere else. And right it's now, in
0: your computer, if you just start stripping it, m- m- sort of blindly, just taking big chunks of it out, and you think ninety yeah. percent of the sharks. 90% of the tunas, the swordfish. There's been a drop in squid, in shrimp, in lobsters, you name it, across the web of life. Mm-hmm. And many other forms of life that are destroyed in the process of taking those that we ulti- ultimately wind up in marketplace, in the marketplace. So yeah. it's... I In 2020, the what some people refer to as the anthropos, where humans... Mm-hmm sort of hit the
1: the, The pause button
0: yeah the pause button (laughs) and I I actually spent that time plus a bit before thinking about these things and trying to figure out how to how to say what we're talking about Mm
2: -hmm.
0: in the book that National Geographic asked me to produce it's called ocean a global Odyssey and I I learned a lot in the process of, of gathering the up-to-date information. Uh, first of all, about sort of simple sounding questions like, where did the ocean come from?
2: <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> where the ocean has, where all that water arrived. And, and what I did was to try to assemble the, the most up-to-date thinking about the formation of the ocean, formation of earth, the beginning of, of life itself. And, and so a lot of it, it's kind of nerdy in those in the first part, but they're kid-like questions right. that that you might want to know and might want to know how we know. So I tried to fill in those blanks. And then the second part is about who lives in the ocean. Uh-huh. And of course people think, oh, whales, sharks, fish. But there's a lot more. Oh yeah. The, those animals I just named are all vertebrates. And when you think they all have a backbone. Of one. <laughs> With with sharks, it's a cartilaginous backbone, but nonetheless, they're in the same big group that most people think of as life on Earth. They're certainly mm-hmm. animals,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and and yet the greatest diversity and abundance of life still it's in the ocean. There may be thirty five big divisions of life, and sharks. I mean, all the fish, all the mammals, all the birds, all the Amphibians, all of the reptiles together make up one small group. Mm-hmm. And The 30 plus others are all in the ocean. Only about half of them have representation on the land. So, the, this book aims to celebrate that. But there's like a, you know, some books you can open up and you see a double page spread. Well, we did more. We did a big fold out.
2: Oh, okay
0: and the vertebrates occupy one little corner Mm -hmm. amazing diversity of life you know the jellyfish the starfish variations on the theme of so-called worms they're flatworms and arrow worms and polychaete worms and yeah but each one occupying kind of a separate place and then finally and this is a part you probably will dive into first might say oh so how does the ocean affect humans, and how do humans affect the ocean? And here are the problems. And so, what are we going to do about it?
1: Hmm. Hmm. And- well, that's important. I mean, how? What are we going to do about it? And I think you know, through your your uh, your or- Mission Blue organization, you're really pushing the the envelope there with these types of you know issues obviously your book your book is gonna do wonders for uh the average person who wants to uh learn about this who's intrigued about i've always been you know fascinated by the sea and the ocean as a kid i grew up in florida uh Hmm. in the orlando area we would always went to um new smyrna beach or daytona beach you know on weekends with the family and um, spent a little time on the golf side, too, and, and I enjoyed the golf. Co- Matter of fact, I like the golf side better than the than the <laughs> site, but, um, you know, it's just one of those things. But, uh, you know, I've always been a, a water guy. And, you know, I think that love of the ocean, probably more like you, I ended up going into uh, in college, a biology major. You know, I mean, that's so <laughs> I loved it, you know, and, and I gravitated toward it and it, it allowed me to, you know, I quickly understood, you know, the, uh, connections between, you know, uh, the various forms of life. And I mean, if you've ever scuba dived or snorkeled in the ocean and has it been able to see the, you know, aqua life, so to speak in there, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It's amazing. And you just wonder, wow, there's so cool. much majesty down there.
0: The florida gulf coast is actually one of the hope spots not all okay. hope spots are as large as that uh-huh. some of them are small but there are others that are even somewhat larger mm-hmm. like sargasso sea mm-hmm. a huge chunk of the ocean but nations are coming together to really offer greater protection than had been afforded before for the same for, for the reasons I've been articulating is, is people really understand the importance of the ocean to every breath you take, every drop of water you drink. Uh-huh. So you're more inclined to be to care about it, knowing right. that your life depends on it.
1: Right, right. You know, when I was reading your uh, your uh, preface and your foreword in in the book that's coming out, you know, one of the one of the things that kind of struck me was you know, a lot of people have this notion that the ocean's too big to fail. Right. Right. And like we can just keep pulling anything out of it. We can dump whatever we want. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to, you know, replenish itself. And 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 I don't know at this point that that's not really the case anymore. I mean, we're doing more damage to the oceans then people realize, and the people reason people don't understand or realize is because they're not there, right? They're not going out into the sea and seeing the firsthand the situation. And I think it's people like you and other ocean, you know, marine biologists and and, and uh, people who are showing people this is going to be what makes, you know, hearts and minds change.
0: Well, there are now millions of divers who can not only go into the sea but share the view and they Uh do Mm -hmm.
2: the
0: that's the good news the not so good news is you can only go to maybe 30 or 40 or 50 meters (laughs) and then time runs out the physiological conditions make it impossible to go much deeper or stay much longer but you know you get an hour passport at maybe 20 meters yeah the deeper you go the less time you have until you reach that you, point where you just you gotta go
1: back up real fast huh? you,
0: you have to yeah you know, limited time but um the average depth of the ocean is like two and a half miles about where the titanic is scuba divers don't go there yeah you the can't it's seven miles so developing the technologies the submersibles the underwater robots well it's been yeah Another big piece of my life because... Yeah,
1: talk about that, because that was interesting. That's part of your, your DOE, or is it DOER?
0: Yeah. door project? Yeah. Talk exploration about that. and research. Yeah. That my daughter and son-in-law own and operate now, but um, it had a predecessor, deep ocean engineering, that, that I co-founded. And the whole idea is to advance better access to the sea so we can understand it and therefore be able to take care of it.
2: Uh-huh, right now, uh-huh.
0: in ignorance, we're we're using trawls to catch fish. Uh-huh. It's like using a, like a bulldozer to catch songbirds.
2: Uh-huh. You destroy
0: the forest, and you shake out a few things that you want to take to eat, and everything else you throw away. Uh-huh. And that's what happens with these trawls, shrimp trawls in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh-huh. But, as a scuba diver you might have seen because you can see in some of the areas where shrimpers go it it looks like a it's just been bulldozed ripped apart you you take everything you go back years later and the scars are still there Mm. it it doesn't just heal overnight at all and
1: this episode is sponsored by regenesis Have you noticed that the use of traditional methods to remediate PFAS contamination in groundwater are proving difficult for many who are struggling to manage long-term PFAS exposure? Pump-and-treat systems using activated carbon filters are expensive and difficult to treat wide areas of PFAS contamination. But now, there's a proven alternative to pump-and-treat systems that eliminates PFAS risk for decades. Regenesis has developed PlumeStop, an in-situ remediation technology that solves PFAS remediation challenges in groundwater applied under low pressure injection plume Stop's colloidal activated carbon quickly and safely addresses pfos without the expense and maintenance costs incurred with pump and treat systems to learn more about plume stop and the science behind regenesis proprietary organic polymer dispersion chemistry go to www.pfostreatment.org that's www.pfostreatment.org Are are we really, I mean, how close to failure do you think the, you know, we are if, if we continue down this path where we're harvesting is the fish like never before and we're polluting the oceans, you know, like never before. I mean, like the great garbage patch out in the Pacific Ocean, I mean-
0: the whole ocean I'm, is a big garbage patch. Come on.
1: <laughs> right. Now I mean, right. I mean it's getting worse, right? I mean it's it's more obvious, but there is a big one floating out there that's yeah. pretty significant too, right?
0: Yep, yeah, but it's true in, in the Atlantic where these big gyres form. And the strike SOC is another example. The floating material gets caught in the in the circular large uh, circular currents and just goes mm-hmm. round and round and gets sort of trapped and has a magnified appearance, but um, all that stuff ultimately sinks. So it's not just at the surface, it's throughout the water column.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And as it breaks down into smaller bits, even to the new term is nanoplastics. They're uh-huh. microscopic and they're so small that they're easily swept up in the wind and in the air we breathe. In the water we drink in the food we eat especially when you eat wild animals from the sea like tuna and swordfish and halibut and shrimp because they don't have a choice they're they're just swimming in this stuff Uh and and inhaling it so it's um it is a problem but the the bigger problem would be if we didn't know but we do know we are armed with knowledge we We have this superpower called knowledge.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We can do something about it. We
0: can do something about it. And having large areas protected where you leave the fish in place, you don't use them as deliberate dump sites, and you really do your best to give nature a break. Right. When you do, well, as I say, you can't go back to what was, but you can certainly make them better Make these areas, make the whole world better than it currently is.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One
0: place, one action, all of these actions, all these individual, you know, every individual, either by doing something or not doing something, you're making a difference. So if you get enough people doing something that's right, it really does add up. It really does when you think about it.
1: Little by little, we're all taking little steps, it does add up, right?
0: You think all the little bites people take out of the ocean with a tuna fish sandwich or salad or squid or whatever it is. I so much rather see these wild animals stay in the ocean. Mm-hmm. We don't eat songbirds anymore. What are we doing eating their equivalent from the sea? <laughs> now, if, if, you have, if you really are hungry and you don't have choices, that's one thing. But that's not what is causing 90% of the tuna to be gone. Right. It's, right. We take them on an industrial scale. Market them right. all over the world have a huge carbon footprint and leaving great great holes in the ocean, if you will.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, you're right. And you know, I think that you know technology today has really brought another level of awareness. Yes. I mean, talk about the, you know like again you were kind of one of the trailblazers creating you know the deep ocean exploration research group to design these submarines that i could go down into the sea and i could i could see yeah. and video yep. record and test things and-
0: so simple even a scientist can do it <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean it's amazing <laughs> right i mean there's some people think you, you ought to be afraid going down into the ocean, but once you're there, you see, oh, this is this is great. This is beautiful. Why did I not do this before? Yeah, and whether yeah. it's scuba di- snorkeling or scuba diving or venturing forth in a little submarine. And I'm, we're trying with the DOR, deep ocean exploration and research to really advance democratization of access to the sea. I want little kids to be able to go down and, and from the earliest time, just understand that the most of life on earth actually lives in the dark, mm-hmm. you get below and not, not just at night, but right. You
1: know, get this below the sun, the sun won't penetrate the ocean, you know, the depths of the ocean anymore. I mean, there's still yeah, down at
0: hundred feet, you know, it's darker, everything looks blue. Yeah. And the deeper you go, the darker it gets until the sunlight doesn't penetrate below thousand feet or so. And, the, even in the clearest ocean water and some places it's like 10 feet, depending on where you are. <laughs> true.
2: It's true,
0: But, but um, a lot of the action photosynthesis is up there in the surface waters, but there are alternative methods for generating food that we really didn't think about much until the late 1970s. And that's called chemosynthesis in the depths of the sea and even in marshes uh, that there are organisms, mostly bacteria, but some in a different kingdom of life called the archaea that look a lot like bacteria, mm-hmm. but are very different. There's different from one another, but it's a, a bacterium from a, a microbe in the, known as an archaean as let's say, I don't know, cows are from mushrooms, I suppose. <laughs>
1: Well, that's interesting. you know um, i I was reading that uh, your your algae study is pretty legendary in the Gulf of Mexico that you did your doctorate thesis on uh, you, you You actually identified many, many species of algae that no, no one really knew about before, and several many of those are in the Smithsonian Institute. Talk a little bit about that. I think that was pretty interesting.
0: Well, it was really exciting. As a kid scientist, uh, to take on a project to get to know the nature of the various algae and seagrasses that live in the Gulf of Mexico,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I was at Duke University, undertook this project, and I was told it was overly ambitious, <laughs> 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 but. That didn't really discourage me. I, and I'm still working on it, actually. So it was overly ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> it's a <laughs> lifelong ambition. <laughs> it is. But it really, over a 10-year period, because there are two children, I, I got married and, had, and a lot of things in between. So I didn't stay in anchored in school for that whole time, but to, from between 1956 and 19... 66, master's and PhD, both at Duke, um, I managed to spend quite a lot of time, often on my own, um, because I didn't know about writing grants and things to support scientific research, but going out along the whole coast from the Mississippi Delta all the way down to the Florida Keys and hitching a ride when I could with fishermen who would take me out with them and what mm-hmm. they dragged to the surface in nets. And, the, and that's when I began scuba diving seriously, too, and went out with Navy divers from Panama City. Okay. Doing things then that you couldn't do today because of all the security concerns. But no, they just let me go along with them. And that's really when I seriously learned how to scuba dive by watching the Navy divers and and um, coming back alive. All the time.
1: <laughs> well, that's yeah, yeah. But but the 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 diversity of algae and species you you identified and found had to be fair. I mean, really amazing. I mean, just like fascinating.
0: Well, it was because before then, well, the studies had been made before. There's a, a really well worn copy of a book about the Gulf of Mexico, its origin, waters, and marine life that was published in 1954, and that was. My bible for knowing about the nature of the gulf of mexico i, I went to st petersburg college when it was a junior college
2: mm-hmm. in
0: the 50s and then went to florida state for my bachelor's degree mm-hmm. in 55 and then to duke and raced through getting a master's degree in a year in 56 wow. and then uh, all this time really looking at the gulf of mexico and trying to understand what was beneath the surface. And most of what was known was done from ships or from, from the seaweeds, the marine algae, and the, the seagrasses were mostly done by walking along the shore, wading in the shallow water, but not diving. Scuba doesn't didn't really uh-huh. exist very widely. A few people were. When I first tried scuba in 1953. I had two words of instruction you'll love this if you're a scuba diver my words of instruction were breathe naturally <laughs> hey, that was it <laughs> that's about all we knew yeah i i got a little more sophisticated over the 10 year period and still get more sophisticated all the time with the new technologies that now with underwater robots and aut- uh, autonomous underwater vehicles that can survey wide areas but Even just using scuba, it was a quantum shift in terms of what people knew about the nature of seaweeds and other forms of life in the Gulf of Mexico. Because, as a scientist, you could, or anybody, a witness, you could actually go there, Uh see fish swimming in something other than lemon slices and butter, Uh seeing them in their own turret. That's when I first began to. Realize that fish are individuals, that you could recognize differences among barracuda and sharks. You know, Jane Goodall made history by living for 15 years, day and night, with chimpanzees and getting to know them as individuals, their faces, their behavior. Not just that there's a chimpanzee that you know is different from a, <laughs> from a, another form of great ape,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but every one different. She gave them names. I got to see that fish like humans and cats and dogs and chimpanzees were, they're all different. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that was a breakthrough.
1: Oh, wow. That's amazing. You know, one of the, uh, f- things that, uh, in, I had a lot of enjoyment of, I was in Panama, and we got to go snorkeling and we got to go in, at night and go see the mm. bioluminescent algae down there. We were snorkeling and just and the uh, phytoplankton, too. And just to just see those when you're swimming and you, you go like this and everything lights up like it's, you know, oh fireworks. And you're like, oh, my gosh. It was just amazing. And I thought, wow, this is this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Um, Excuse me it was it was really good. I enjoyed it and I'm sure you know finding some algae like that that you're like wow, I never saw that before was was pretty special um,
0: so little excuse me of the ocean has has really been explored
1: yeah, I'll bet I just mean
0: just beginning to understand the, the big discovery. The magnitude of our ignorance
1: right now yeah, it's like i didn't know yeah we didn't know but again i think technology yeah and technology's helping us learn that i mean even more i mean the, like the engineering uh work that you've done with the submarines and, and and other uh you know things like uh technology that's coming into play so you can get down talk about your google map uh involvements of the google ocean uh mapping the ocean. I thought that was pretty fascinating. I think listeners might like to hear that.
0: If you haven't used Google Earth, and a lot of people have at this point, to be able to be like an astronaut you're there, high in the sky, looking at the world, and and you can sort of dive in. You can go through space and wind up at a place that you decide that you want to be.
2: Mm-hmm. You
0: can go see the national parks. You can go to cities around the world. You can go to your backyard. You can go to your neighbor's backyard,
2: mm-hmm. you
0: find Starbucks. But what until Google got serious and and started looking seriously at the ocean, everything was terrestrial. I attended a conference with the person who brought Google Earth to Google. It was a, kind of a secret. Um, project of the U.S. government mm-hmm. uh, known as Keyhole, that when it became open to the public, what John Hankey the then head of, of, of the organization did, and uh, acquired by Google, and the whole Google Earth um, approach. Anyway, we we were at a meeting simultaneously. Each of us had to give a talk. And I got up to say how much I love, well, I was talking about the ocean, but John Hankey was sitting right in the front in the audience. So I looked at him and then I was inspired to say that how much I love Google Earth. But I I just said it, I probably shouldn't have, but I did say you should call it Google Dirt because... (laughs) it's all about the land right (laughs) and afterwards i mean hanky could have been annoyed he he could have (laughs) whatever he he said it was like getting stabbed in the heart and he said you know you're right something has been missing from google earth and i couldn't resist saying you know yeah most of it most of it's missing most of (laughs) it 90, yeah, of, like
1: some percent of it,
0: right? It's missing. Of the, of the biosphere where creatures live, it's, it's the ocean. Even the surface, you know, it's like two-thirds of it is ocean. And so he, he invited me to go down to the Googleplex and meet the Googlers and see what could be done to fix Google Earth. And three years later, we actually launched the ocean in Google Earth and it was in 2009, and it was uh, spectacular. That was the same time that the predecessor to the book, National Geographic book that is coming out this November, that's called uh, Ocean, it was a, a, an atlas of the ocean, again, National Geographic, that um, was a great education in itself.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: that's also the same week that I got the TED Prize and it all kind of came together in one glorious mashup <laughs> the launching of, of the ocean and Google earth wow. where you could actually start from high in the sky and then come down and, and go into the ocean and s- get little snapshots of what it's like, who lives there. And we, mm-hmm. we are not arbitrarily. I think it was, it was a challenge to figure out what places could we, Name just think about would be special places that we could refer to as hope spots. Uh, When the ocean in in Google Earth uh, launched, we Mm -hmm. had 12 places, Mm. sort of no-brainers. Who wouldn't want to save the Galapagos Islands?
1: Yeah, I was going to say that one. Right, right, (laughs) right.
0: SOC was one such area: the polar regions, the Arctic, the Antarctic.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Country of Palau is legendary. As a diver, you probably know about Palau. I've heard about it. it. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: And anyway, so we uh, featured that. And then making my wish to embrace the world with a network of hope spots. Now, none of these hope spots are protected. Uh, San Francisco Bay is an example. It's a hope spot. But it's, it's not exactly it's, pristine, it's not exactly pristine. Yeah, no, but, I know it's beautiful I mean, better than it is, right, the idea is to enlist champions, and through them to work locally with communities, uh-huh. whether it's a small community, or like San Francisco, it's pretty, that's large. a big,
1: yeah, they've got and a lot of you know, supporters there.
0: Involved. Right, right goal is, okay, what have we got? Where are we? How can we improve? Not only what is thought to be the condition of a place, but even knowing about it, let's do an inventory. Let's find out who lives here. Mm-hmm. Let's share the view with as many people as possible and and be and track change over time and and mm-hmm. to do this. We've begun working with Esri, the,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the geo
1: GIS mapping
0: that's happening. right. They, yeah. they do layers of data, they've like Google had started out focusing on the land, but now they're zooming into the ocean, uh, literally, mm-hmm. going into areas that were getting data getting images getting information and sharing stories so every every hope spot is being um, mapped blessed yeah mapped and mm-hmm. you have a story map that is filled with information but also where people can share their experiences
1: oh that's that's amazing now, i hope, mean
0: here's what we do about it and then somebody else has a problem somewhere else here's what we do about it and You've got this network of hope growing around the world that's well, uh, that's uh, each chapter of the global odyssey book is is um has it features one of the hope spots so they're uh, okay only 11 chapters so we just do a you know small rotation that's those gonna be great 140 places around the world
1: oh okay Did you know eTank is the only environmental rental equipment company in the industry that offers a 100% certified clean guarantee at no additional cost? Well, this gives customers the peace of mind knowing that container contents from the previous renter isn't going to cross contaminate the contents of the current customer and potentially cause liability concerns. You know, E-Tank also provides a -a one-of-a-kind complete maintenance program for all its rental items including liquid-tight roll-off containers, fluid transfer pumps, and filtration system components. To learn more about the types of containers and pumps E-Tank supplies, check out their website at www.etank.net. So the next time you are faced with an environmentally challenging project, give E-Tank a call to help solve your problem. It's just that easy! Now I saw that you um, designated a, a big, a big spot, a big uh, protected area uh, near Hawaii or in the Hawaiian islands area, Ooh. or no, Midway, Midway area, right?
0: Well, the Papua north yeah. Hawaiian islands, it was, it's been a place that has been noticed through many administrations over the years. Uh, even Theodore Roosevelt did something to benefit the birds that nest there. But over the years, the sensitivity to this as a special place has, has actually grown. But it was George W. Bush who, with the stroke of his pen, designated out 50 miles from not just the land, but going out 50 miles with a high level of protection. Even the fish, even the lobsters, even the squid are safe
2: uh-huh.
0: because of this action as a national marine monument uh, and then fast forward to 2016 and uh, President Obama quadrupled the size of it, taking it all the way out to the edge of the exclusive economic zone, 200 miles nice. from shore. And so as a hope spot, it's just trying to alert the public at large, as well as the Hawaiian local Citizens, people yeah. who are closest to the reserve, to continue to support full protection. You know, it's so easy to see what looks like great abundance and say, "What's wrong with taking a ton or okay. two, or, yeah. six or a 100 The mm-hmm. ocean is mm-hmm. so resilient, but now we know we have the evidence. Uh, yeah, and. 50 years, we have taken so much out of the ocean and we put so much into the ocean, changing through what we're putting into the atmosphere as well as into the ocean, the climate, the chemistry of the planet, half the coral reefs are gone or in a state of decline through actions that we have taken that seem to be, well, who cares, you know, we, we can take the grouper, we're not going to harm the coral, but we'll take the fish. Huh. Not realizing that the corals need the fish.
1: <laughs> you know, yeah, they they work, they work together. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a system. Right. And it's, it's, a, it's a really tightly knit community. So taking the lobsters out of coral reefs, you, you degrade the system and make them more vulnerable to right. climate change and to the acidification of the ocean. It, it's as if we're doing everything possible to make the planet inhospitable for us. Yeah,
1: unlivable, right. It's like we're, we're like, you know, slowly, painstakingly killing ourselves.
0: <laughs> yeah, killing the planet. We, yeah,
1: we... right. I mean, you know, climate change is such a big topic in society right now. And I think mo- there's it's never before had such a big awareness in society right now. Uh, companies are really making big commitments to carbon emission reductions. Um, I think, uh, you know, people who are in the financial markets are seeing a, a big change in the in the, the way people are buying, you know, shares and, you know, uh, investing in companies, they they want global environmental change. And I I think that that's really, you know, making an impact. And I think now we ha- we're at an opportunity where some of these changes and things like you've been advocating for for years are starting to kind of really take foot and and really having more meaningful um, you know representation in society what, what, what's your take on what you see currently happening right now in in society as awareness wise you know right
0: well plenty of reason for optimism i think you can you can get really depressed really fast but if you stay there if you think there's no hope it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you'll just give up mm-hmm. and Well, I keep saying we can't go back even five years, let alone 500, but we can, by starting right now, this minute, do something this hour, this day to move in the right direction. And you get 8 billion people moving in that direction, even with little things, it adds up. What do you do with your trash? What choices do you make about what to eat or not? What to wear or not? how to travel. We have choices every day. And they're sometimes subtle, but once you know and if you make conscious decisions about what... Well, take the matter of consuming ocean wildlife. That's a choice. Oh, yeah. It's really hard to justify eating tuna as a necessity. Mm -hmm. I like to do it but you don't need to do it. You might think it's good for you, but when you really think it through, it's not good for the ocean, so it's not good for you. And when you think further about what that tuna has been eating and accumulating as a top predator, a fish that eats fish that eats other fish that finally gets down to the phytoplankton, you're accumulating the very things you don't want that have accumulated in the tuna that you don't want in you. right Right up the food chain, they call it bioaccumulation. And we don't eat top predators that we grow from the land, but even so we get things in the animals that we eat that we really don't want in you, but consider an animal that eats an animal that eats an animal, that eats an animal. We're talking about sometimes 10 or 20 steps to get to what goes into a tuna and bioaccumulation all the way these high levels, oh. not just mercury, although that's a famous one, but now we're looking even at the nanoplastics making their way up through the food chain. And so tiny that at the molecular level, they go right through the membranes of cells. Well, is-
1: there's other, there's other emerging contaminants now that are out there called, you know, the PFAS chemicals are the pearl you know, those, those are, those are big, uh, bioaccumulating forever chemicals that don't break down and, and they will, they've got uh, toxic, you know, cancerous type, uh, you know, uh, properties that if you ingest them and they bioaccumulate enough, they're, they're a big problem. And our, the sea life and aquatic life are exposed to these too when they're being dumped in the escape. rivers and streams.
0: They're, they can't escape. Yeah. We can't escape what's in the air. We breathe it. I mean, you can wear a mask and that may help to bring right. out some of the, things that you don't know.
1: Do. Right. But right. The- no, it's, a. you know, I think though that the awareness of, uh, environmental awareness now is really, uh, at front of mind in most, um, I, I'd call them the millennials, the Gen Zs, uh, you know, most, most, uh, Gen Xers in the world. Uh, I think some of the baby boomers are kind of like, well, you know, we're almost done at the end of the life here, but there's still some there that have a lot of, you know, awareness, but, Right now, I think we're at a precipice where more people are now concerned about environmental sustainability, um, you know recycling, uh, being you know just ha- being living more greener in life, you know and, and what can I do?
0: I know some crusty CEOs who say, ah, I'm not going to worry about my kids or grandkids. they'll take care of themselves you know like, ah and I say <laughs> <laughs> imagine." if all of your predecessors just lived with that attitude, that it wasn't, did not live with a concern about leaving the world a better place, about the the world that your kids are going to inherit. Mm -hmm. Um, Fortunately, I think it's more general for people to care about wanting their kids and grandkids at least, those they can, know and love and see the future through their eyes, that I think our society has prospered, our civilization has prospered because we learn things and pass it along, learn things, pass it along, each generation acquiring new knowledge, new information that has caused us to reach this great, amazing level of prosperity and influence and power, but for the first time, we have enough knowledge to be able to see as never before what our predecessors could not, that consuming the planet as a means of fostering our prosperity, cutting the Mm -hmm. trees, Mm -hmm. food feed of lumber, consuming the fish, the Lewis and Clark expeditions going back in the 1800s. I mean, that, that was, really designed to find new ways to open commerce across the country. They killed the animals to bring back furs, the skins, the hides of bears and wolves and Mm -hmm. beavers and you name it. Everything was quotes, fair game. And we honor those early explorers for what they discovered and the way they communicated their discoveries. But when you think about it today, Mm-hmm. It was pretty brutal. Yeah. And conquering the people who lived there, thinking of them as yeah. know, something to be taken over.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: mm-hmm. so, as, and, and I think we are really at a crossroads that has never been possible before because we have a level of knowledge that is unprecedented. Yeah. And I think of this as the sweet spot in time. It's an engineering term, you know. It's, it, it's just right, you know. Never before could you could we do this, and never again will we have a chance. If we go too far, we'll lose the chance. Mm-hmm. Right where we are, armed with what we now know, we can embrace the living world with new understanding. And, and another reason for me to be really optimistic is: look at twenty twenty. Can we change? huh we did change we did and yeah overnight people when they realize my life depends on taking a different approach and what happened
1: i mean we all, we all adjusted we all adjusted and, and we all reaffect right. we refocused our priorities we right. slowed down a little bit we enjoyed our families more we 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 started thinking more sustainable in life. I mean, I know we, my wife and I did. I mean, you know, uh, you realized that uh, you didn't need to drive your car an hour to work one way every day. You know, you could just stay at home and zoom. We can make decisions. Um, we, can, right. we can
0: not to eat tuna when you know. Yeah. It's not good for you. We yeah. Can stop smoking when you know it's not good for you. You can wear a mask. You can, you can get vaccinated when you know your life depends on it. Right. And your community will benefit if you do these simple things. And yeah. um, so uh, why am I <laughs> cautiously optimistic? I know the things that we thought were preposterous that would never change. We'll never do that. And we certainly couldn't do it, one would think, on the scale, the time scale that would be effective. We, you know, gradually we're we're learning that, you know, we've got to take care of nature. We have to mm-hmm. be careful about what we put in the water and into the sky or what we take out of the ocean. And we have policies to protect wild birds because we value their role in keeping the planet safe. It keeps us safe. But, you know, we can when we know that our lives and our prosperity, that our health, Surprise. our security mm-hmm. are truly at risk unless we change our habits and largely, these are habits born of a time when we thought we could get away with doing whatever we wanted to right. the air or the water and to the wild animals, especially yeah. in the ocean.
1: Yeah. And I think people are realizing that's not happy. You can't do that anymore. And... If you're listening to this podcast, I'll bet you may be thinking, how can I level up and advance my career? If you want to get that promotion, increase your regulatory knowledge, gain professional recognition, and earn more money, then it's time to obtain an industry credential from the Institute of Hazardous Material Management. The IHMM offers eight credentials that are ANSI approved for students, experienced, skilled employees without a degree, and for the degree professional looking to set themselves apart from the pack. Their credentials focus on three main areas, Certified Hazardous Material Manager, the CHMM, the Certified Dangerous Goods Professional, the CDGP, and the Certified Safety and Health Manager, the CSHM. If you become an IHMM credential professional, then you will be in the top 1% of your profession and your credential will have a global reach. Check out their programs they offer at www.ihmm.org. That's www.ihmm.org. What are you waiting for? Get started today. I had a guest on um oh well, probably six months or so ago he wrote a book is tom bowman's his name he wrote a book what if say what if solving the climate crisis was simple and uh you know that, that the big the big you know the big uh you know idea here is you know stop using fossil fuels is, is one of the biggest you know like if we can just stop using fossil fuels that would be the number one easiest way to get there sooner rather than later because we're not going to you know, emit we, the
0: CO2. But if we only do that, we won't solve the problem.
1: Well, that's true because there's a lot. Yeah. There's there's multiple facets to this you know part well, of the equation, but that's securing, a big one.
0: Securing the natural systems that got Earth to a place that makes it habitable for us in the first place, healing the harm, safeguarding what we can of what remains of wild places and restoring what we can and to do it as if our lives depend on it, because actually they do.
1: They do. Yeah. I mean, no, you bring up a good point. I think it's part of the equation that most people aren't thinking about as far as restoring, you know, climate in is saving the oceans and, and protecting our wildlife the there. Goes. Yeah. Right. And one thing that really, you know, I, being an environmental scientist and, and um, you know, recognizing climate change really is happening. But, uh, you know, always kind of thinking, well, there's a lot of countries that are doing it worse than we're doing it. And, and I thought at times and i admit it, you know, it's like, well, we're we're regulated pretty heavily in this in our country as far as industry. It was pretty good. But I realized, you know what, we got to do everything we can do. Mm-hmm. And, and Tom, Tom mentioned to me, he goes, you know, Sean, I was meeting with a, a company and a lady and and she says, you know, it's real, the, the climate crisis is really bad. She goes, we're measuring the temperature of the ocean, you know, at, at thousands of feet deep. And it's, it's in the, the average temperature has increased to like two, two and a half degrees, you know, over a, a period of time, I can't remember the time, but you know, it was like, okay. And she goes and at depths of, you know, 3000 feet or something, that's the temperature that's changing because the earth is warming so much. And I was like, Holy cow, that is, massive because when you think of the size of the ocean heating up that much right that's a problem and then it was like oh my gosh everything we can do it doesn't matter what we do but it all needs to be in that green lens that that green decision of is it the right decision to you know not eat fish or not you know not use uh, single use plastics or you know uh go walk to, to the stores to ride your bike instead of, you know, driving your car things like that. I mean, it started to really kind of resonate more and more with me. I was like, wow. And I think more and more people are starting to realize we have to make changes.
0: And it's not hard. In fact, right. you should just <laughs> how much fun it is. Yeah. Embrace it. Have fun with it. Right. To, to be part of that generation that safeguards the world forevermore. You don't want to be part of the generation that loses the chance. Yeah. And in the lifetime of your kids and grandkids looking back at us and saying, why didn't you do something? You knew and you just kept doing the same old things because it was convenient or because you thought nobody's going to tell me what to do or what Mm -hmm. to eat or what to wear or where Mm -hmm. to go or how I go there. To really feel the joy of having the inside track on knowing what nobody could know before. That are, you know, going back, the smartest people who lived before the 1950s did not know what Earth looked like from space. Well, before the 70s, really, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: because it just wasn't possible. Now it is. It wasn't possible to go to the deepest part of the ocean and and witness life all the way down. It wasn't possible to... It's just now beginning to be possible, to pull bits and pieces of information together, to look at the patterns, to make the connections. As you say, why should I care about the ocean? Now we have evidence, we can connect the dots. We can follow the carbon, which is critical to the the climate. Mm-hmm. And the carbon in the atmosphere that is released from not just from burning fossil fuels, not just from burning forests and clear-cutting forests, but clear-cutting the ocean. When you take the hundreds of millions of tons of wildlife out of the ocean, krill from Antarctica, squid from just about everywhere, tuna, Across the globe, all that carbon. Every every living thing is a carbon based. Right. Unit. You yep. you of course I am. <laughs> Microbes are. It's all we're all carbon. I mean, as as Spock says to Captain Kirk, "Let's go find carbon based units, Captain." <laughs> <laughs> you <have to> life <laughs> in the universe. <laughs> yeah. And here we, we know where to look. It's all around us yeah Uh when you follow the carbon and realize that consuming a wild fish means you've you've done your part to break the links and by not consuming them you're doing your part might seem like a tiny thing but imagine if eight billion people or even a billion even a million start this understanding that keeping the carbon in the forests in the soil in the ocean is on the balance it's if we don't do that even if we stop emitting carbon from burning fossil fuels it won't save us because if we if we continue to destroy the natural system
1: it's not going to help either right yeah we, absolutely but Four and a
0: half billion years to get here it's only taken us maybe four and a half decades to significantly unravel yeah. Existence.
1: Well, you know, so one of my childhood memories is um, watching Mutual Omaha
0: oh, wildlife.
1: Yeah. I used to love watching those shows, <laughs> and the other one was the Jacques Cousteau, you know, uh, documentaries. And and I was curious, uh, did you did you get to work with Jacques Cousteau at all in your uh, your time? Uh, he seemed I
0: certainly met him and enjoyed thoughtful conversations but we never got to dive together, but I have been diving with his son, Uh Uh Jean-Michel, and with his, at least one of his grandkids. Um, And we, uh, I remember hearing Jacques Cousteau say, it was at a, in his last year, 1997, it was a big conference in Orlando. I was sitting next to him and he said, you know, I, I, I cannot take my children to places that I knew as a child. He was thinking about the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, mm-hmm. he changed so much in his lifetime.
2: Mm.
0: The next day, talking with Jean-Michel, that um, I can't take my kids to see what I saw, right, as a child. So yeah. we're living in this time of exceptional transformation of the natural systems that once everybody thought of as the way it would always be
2: mm-hmm. but
0: in literally a few decades we have we have had a greater impact a greater era of loss in a shorter period of time than anything in h- human civilization but the flip side of that is we we've also learned more in a shorter period of time than during any other during all of preceding human history.
1: Mm, mm, that's, that's, that's great. That's amazing.
0: What you know,
1: we, go ahead. We
0: know that we couldn't know in the 1950s, even, even 10 years ago, what we now know it's exhilarating.
1: Right. It's exciting. I mean, you're like, wow, there's so much to know now. And you, you know, like you said you can't unknow it once you know it, and then you need to take that information and make good decisions and, 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 yeah. and, you know, move forward and, you know, I I, um, I was looking through some of the information uh, about your your past and, and some of your accomplishments. And, and I mean, there's so much there. Uh, and, and you've just had such a fabulous career. And uh, one of the one of the milestones is still, I think, holds strong. I could be wrong, but uh, you're one of the only women that's ever gone down two thousand or one thousand two hundred fifty feet below sea level. Is that still a, a rec- world record or a record record? Out there for
0: what women. Cool. What was special about that was that no one had been solo at that depth without a tether back to the surface. I mean, um, man or woman, it was not uh-huh. a gender thing. And then, with the using the little deep rover submersible that I had a hand in helping to develop it, that we launched in 1986. For solo dives to a thousand meters, you know, half a wow. mile down. <laughs> wow. Was at, the, at that time, um, no one had been that deep solo. Now, of course, uh, James Cameron solo yeah. In, yeah. in 2012 all the way to the deepest part of the ocean. And since then, Victor Vescovo has not only gone down to the deepest place solo, <laughs> but wow. he's taken. Others along with him now, there, I think there are as many people who've been to the deepest part of the ocean at last as have been on the moon for a long time, you know? Wow, yeah. A thousand people left footprints on the moon. Yeah. And, <laughs> only two people who had been to the deepest part of the ocean uh, from 1960 to when Cameron went, that made three, and then along came Victor Vescovo, that made four. <laughs> It's amazing. Um, well, Victor has taken um, a number of people down, so more than a dozen have actually. That's, been. Well, great. that's great. That is great. well, when you
1: when you look back on your career, Sylvia, what what are you most proud of?
0: Well, I that I'm still doing it, I guess. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see that I, I'd rather look forward. I always do. It's the next expedition that excites me the most. The next well, that is a great attitude. Finished. Absolutely. <laughs> so,
1: but I got to imagine those those hope <laughs> those uh, the hope um, spots got, have to be you know pretty special, near dear to your heart. All the protection that's gone on and
0: absolutely. Well, yeah. it's being others see, and then spread the word to to, to watch the the the, the joy there's, there's no limit on how much joy the world can have. (laughs) There might be a limit on how many fish we can take, but there's no limit on how much fun we can have in saving the world.
1: Absolutely. No, that's great. Well, what, what could, uh, you know, parting shot here, what could, uh, you know, an individual do to help restore the
0: oceans? I think the most important thing that anybody can do is look in the mirror and ask yourself, okay, so who am I? No one is the same. I have a hard time telling somebody else what they can do because I don't know who you are exactly. But I know you know that you're good at something or that you care about something or that you know someone or you whatever it is that just kind of do a (laughs) self-inventory Where are, where can I, what are my strengths? What what have I got? Do you sing? Do you make music? Are you good with numbers? Are you good with kids? Are you a teacher? Are you a car mechanic? Whatever it is you do, build on that and realize that everything matters. It all connects. And if you put in perspective and put in the forefront, the ocean keeps me alive. I'm going to do something to return the favor, to help keep the ocean alive. There are thousands of answers to that question. And That's good. you will do the most and you'll do the best by making your choice based on an assessment of you. A lot of people have big power, but everybody has some power. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all have the superpower of knowing what could not be known before and of using it while there's still time
1: No, oh, that's great now that that is amazing that's a great uh, take and great advice um i highly recommend for the listeners if you haven't seen sylvia's ted talks get online get on youtube watch it very impressive uh congrats on that huge win and and funding um mission blue and and all the good things that you've done there i just um just awesome to see what you've been doing. And um, my goodness, um, it's been such an honor to, to you know have you come on the show and interview you and, and get to spend a little time with you and learn from what you, uh, you've you done in the past and, and what you're still doing today. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on.
0: We'll see you underwater. How about that?
1: I would love that. that. Would be amazing. I, I haven't been out in the in the uh, in the ocean in quite a while. The last time we were out was, uh, yeah, the Panama and Costa Rica trip that we took, and that was some beautiful, uh, beautiful area down there. So, well, thank you for coming on the show. We're going to get this out. Uh, your book is coming out in November, correct? The new one's called Ocean: A Global Odyssey, right?
0: It's it, you can order it. You can pre-order it now. And get it okay. when it's still warm from the press. Yeah,
1: there <laughs> we go. So, uh, listeners, we'd like you to join in and, and you know look up and, and pre-order the book. We may even have a couple uh, giveaways down the road uh, to give away to listeners who uh, have. You uh, might be a lucky one. But uh, you know, Sylvia, thanks for coming on. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the book when it comes out. The the, the pre uh, pre-read I've seen is is spectacular already, and the pictures. You know people a lot of people like pictures in books and i do and oh they're amazing the ones i've seen so far so i'm looking forward to this book and reading it and uh, getting some more information from you on it so thanks for coming on the show today
0: thank you for having me
1: all right awesome it's been great Sylvia Earle for coming onto the show today. If you want to learn more about Sylvia and her new book *Ocean: A Global Odyssey*, it's available at most online retailers, or check out her uh, Mission Blue website at www.mission-blue.org. We'll also put a link to her contact information on my website. To listen to future environmental transformation podcasts, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast networks, or better yet, from my website at www.shawnkgrady.com. You can also follow me on Instagram or the Environmental Transformation Podcast Facebook page. If you enjoyed the podcast episode, don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. We'd also love to hear feedback from the ET Nation about the episode and any future topics you'd like me to cover. Well, for now, thanks for listening. And until next time, make a positive impact in someone's life today.